welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and we are having a conversation with the valued partner, Karen Levine, award-winning REMAX Alliance Realtor. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. And uh, on the line, we have Randall O'Toole. He is the Director of Transportation Policy at the Independence Institute, as well as a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, uh, very thorough researcher, uh, you can find uh, many many of your commentaries at what is your website, Randall? Uh, my website is called the Anti Planner. Uh, just Google Anti Planner, and I'm the first thing on the list. Fantastic and uh, really important research there. So, Randall O'Toole, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. Okay, you are an expert on transportation, urban planning. Uh, as well as housing, and uh, we want to talk about housing. Last time you were on, uh, we had a, a very important conversation about housing, about how PBIs, I'm calling them, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties, are working to control housing, in my view. Uh, but, Karen, you had a really interesting question, and, and go ahead and why don't you set that up regarding, uh, Randall, I think that you had said many times your single-family neighborhoods are safer than other neighborhoods. And Karen, you had a question on that. Yeah. um, What I'm finding in our marketplace here in um, the Denver metro area is that we are an aging populace. And um, many of my clients are looking to sell that single family home where they raise their family and move into a um, property, an ownership property um, that provides them preferably one level living and where the exterior maintenance and yard care is taken care of through in most cases, a homeowner's association. Um, That product could be a patio home, a townhome, or a condominium. Um, We're finding in our marketplace um, a shortage of that product, but also a shortage of that product um, at an affordable price. Um, So I think our conversation was that single-family housing is safer and that it is preferred um, by most Americans, but yet I'm finding that they want to get out of that environment for convenience sake. So I'd love your take on it, Randall. Well, single-family housing is both safer and less expensive, and that's one of the reasons why it's preferred. You know, back in the 1950s, the federal government built a bunch of low-income housing, and some of it was low-rise single-family housing, and some of it was high-rise multifamily housing. And within a little more than a decade, they figured out that the high-rise multifamily housing was unlivable. Even if they gave it away, nobody wanted to live in it, and so they ended up tearing it down. And an architect named Oscar Newman asked, well, why was it that the high-rise housing didn't work when the low-rise housing that was occupied by the same kind of people, same people, income class, uh, uh, worked just fine? And so he did a study of thousands and thousands of city blocks, and he looked at the uh, uh, architectural characteristics of those blocks, and he looked at the crime rates on those blocks. And what he found was that when you have a lot of private land, you know, private yards, uh, private homes, uh, with only one, preferably only one entrance, you know, a, a front entrance but no alley in the back or something like that, then it was very safe. And it was safe because if, if you saw somebody walking across somebody's property, you could real, recognize really quickly whether they belonged there or not by, by whether they lived there or not. Whereas with the multifamily housing, there was a lot of common areas. The, the yard around the, the building was common. The hallways in the building were common. The lo- lobbies were common. 
and so on. And so nobody knew if they saw somebody walking in one of these common areas, whether they live there or whether they're a potential burglar or, or a mugger or something like that. And so there was no way to uh, prevent crime in the area. So those, the multifamily areas had a lot more crime. Now, upscale multifamily dwellings can avoid this by having, uh, uh, first of all, locked doors on all the outside entrances. And second of all, it helps if you've got somebody at the doors, a guard there or a doorman, uh, monitoring who goes in and out. So upscale uh, can avoid that, but uh, low-income multifamily housing has a real problem today. The other thing is that it costs a lot more to build, build multi-story housing. Four to five stories costs twice as much per square foot as, as single-story or two-story buildings. Three stories cost 50% more than two-story buildings per square foot. And if you get into high-rise, you're getting into five, six, seven times as much per square foot. So uh, if, if you're complaining that your clients can't find affordable multifamily housing, it's because the city is building a lot of four- and five- and six-story buildings when really affordable multifamily housing has to be two stories tall or less uh, if you want it to be affordable. Otherwise, you're going to have to heavily subsidize it, and that's not really what your clientele is looking for. Well, it's interesting in the metro Denver and throughout the Colorado region, um, we don't have very much ownership multifamily housing. So it's not a cost problem. It's a, um, a supply problem. And the reason we don't have multifamily is because of a um, law that was passed known as construction defects that precludes developers um, from wanting to come into our marketplace because of the cost of errors and admissions insurance, which again relates to what you said, the cost is higher. Um, so I find that interesting. What would be a question I would have with regards to that set that study on crime, when they looked at those units, both the single family and the multifamily, were those ownership units or were those rental type units? Well, the, the ones that he looked at were mostly rental type units, both of the single family and the multifamily. But his work has been replicated uh, on literally hundreds of thousands of city blocks in studies all over the world, uh, looking at both ownership and uh, rented units. And whether it's owned or rented doesn't seem to be the factor. Uh, the, there are other factors, uh, the, the, but the main two factors are having multiple entrances. Mm -hmm. So if you have alleys behind uh, or parking areas where people can get in through several entrances, that's one of the problems, and the other problem is having lots of common areas. So those are the two biggest factors he found. And ironically, uh, pretty much everything that the urban planners want is to will make our neighborhoods less safe. Another factor he found relating to multiple entrances, it applies not just to the building but to the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of cul-de-sacs, that makes your neighborhood safer because it means there are fewer getaway routes for burglars. But if you have a gridded street network, uh, it makes for multiple getaway routes. And so one way to make a neighborhood with, on a gridded street safer is to put in a lot of 
uh, barriers to make it difficult to leave, you know, essentially the little cul-de-sacs. And ironically, urban planners think cul-de-sacs are awful. They think that gridded streets are the right way to go. So it seems like urban planners have hit upon all the ways of making our neighborhoods less safe and decided that that's the way neighborhoods should be built, and, and, and they want to mandate that. Well, and Randall, when we're talking about common areas, when you listen to uh, some of the Democrat presidential candidates, uh, and again, you see this in the, throughout the planning community as well, is, you know, this push to four and five story apartment buildings here in Colorado. And then as uh, then they say, and, and a, a park within walking distance. But, you know, I go by a lot of parks and people are there. But, uh, you know, as far as many times sending your child down to the park just by themselves, you don't feel that that is as safe as letting them play in the backyard. Mm. And uh, so we're seeing, though, this movement for people into these high-rises, but yet we'll have a park over here. Well, I, that seems less safe to me as well. Your comments, Randall. Well, you know, <clears throat> people complain about um, low-density development, but as you say, everybody in a single-family neighborhood has a park within walking distance. It's their backyard. And those backyards become uh, important for uh, children, for pets, for uh, entertaining, for all sorts of things, and uh, gardening, whatever. Uh, And so taking away those parks uh, is taking away an important part uh, of our lifestyles. The the urban planners uh, who have written plans for Denver and Portland and Seattle and uh, most California cities have essentially written the plans to say, we're going to reduce the percentage of people who live in single-family homes. And we're going to do that by driving up the cost of single-family homes. And uh, to me, that's unconscionable. That's uh, why are they trying to change American lifestyles? Uh, there's, there's really no environmental benefit to doing that. There's a huge cost problem. They're, they're deliberately making housing unaffordable. And then they blame single-family homeowners for not wanting apartments built in their neighborhoods, and they try to get rid of single-family zoning to make uh, even less single-family housing available. Randall, that is uh, so interesting that you would say that because on two different occasions I've had listeners reach out to me where uh, in single-family neighborhoods there's uh, developers working in concert with politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties to use rezoning to put in four or five six, uh, or six-story apartment buildings in these uh, in these neighborhoods, and people are pushing back. But as I read Blueprint Denver, uh, it uh, continues to talk about using the rezoning laws uh, or rezoning rules to change these neighborhoods to the way these planners want it instead of the way people want it. So, But let's go to break. When we come back, I think we pretty well answered that question, right, Karen? Uh, when we come back, let's talk about urban sprawl. That word sprawl seems to have a, a negative connotation. However, you know, people like single-family homes, so I would like to hear how you address that, Randall. And so this is Kim Munson. Karen Levine is in studio. Randall O'Toole is on the line, and we'll be right back. Hey, 
Welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and let's have a conversation with Karen Levine, award-winning realtor with REMAX Alliance and valued partner. Thank you very much for having me. And if people want to reach you, 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. And we have on the line with us Randall O'Toole. It is always a great conversation with you, Randall O'Toole. You are the Director of Transportation Policy with the Independence Institute, as well as a senior fellow with uh, the Cato Institute, and uh, people can find your writings and by Googling the Anti-Planner. Do I have all that right, Randall? That's right. Okay. Next question. Uh, you're, you're an expert on transportation, urban planning, housing, and Karen and I were having a conversation about sprawl, and the planners do not like sprawl. Sprawl doesn't sound like a good word. How would you address that? Well, what planners call sprawl is basically uh, uh, single-family housing, which about two-thirds of Americans live in, and about 80% of Americans want to live in. So, yes, there are some people who want to live in multifamily, but more people want to live in single-family than we actually have single-family housing for. And single-family housing, low-density development, is the answer to a lot of urban problems. Uh, one of the problems is traffic congestion. Well, when you have low densities, you don't have congestion. Congestion happens at high densities. Uh, another problem that it answers is affordable housing. Low-density housing costs less than high-density housing. Uh, if land in this country is extraordinarily cheap, all the urban areas in this country only add up to about 3% of the land area of the country. So we have a huge amount of land available. Uh, so land is practically free, and then uh, building low-density homes, it costs a lot less to build a one- or two-story home than to build three- or four- or five-story buildings because you need a lot more concrete and steel and other uh, structural materials in the higher buildings. So you've got cheap land if you're building at the urban fringe, and you've got cheap construction methods. Low-density housing is affordable housing. So the urban planners don't like it for a variety of reasons, but I think most of them are uh, based on deep-seated prejudices against certain uh, people having certain lifestyles. And basically it's a question of middle class versus working class. Uh, The middle class people don't think the working class people should be able to do things the way that the middle class people themselves want to do things. So you see urban planners who live on a quarter acre or half acre lot saying to other people we should force more people to live in high density housing and they mean working class people so you have this bigotry against the working class and they're saying uh, we need to get more high density housing so they write plans that well portland has a plan that was written in 1996 at that time 65 percent of portlanders lived in single-family housing, and they wanted to reduce it by the year 2040 to 40%. So 25% of Portlanders, under their plan, would be forced to live in multifamily housing, even if they preferred to live in single-family. And it's not just Portland. It's San Francisco. It's Denver. It's Seattle. Uh, Places all over the country are writing plans like this in an effort to stop urban sprawl. Now, the Russians say that Americans don't have real problems, and so they have to make them up. (laughs) Urban sprawl is one of those made-up problems. It's actually the solution. It's not the problem. Okay, 
Is anything else on that, Karen, do you think? Well, I have a question. So I understand the um, the concept of single-family homes and, and the urban sprawl conversation, but then the big question for me is um, job opportunity. And um, you talked about that it doesn't take more resources if if you live outside an urban area and that it does reduce traffic, et cetera, et cetera, but it increases does it not increase time? Does it not increase consumption of resources? Um, I use um, Elizabeth as an example. Um, we were having a conversation with those city council people as well as Castle Rock, and they're both really bedroom communities. They don't have an economy to support the people that live there, so those people are either going to Colorado Springs or Denver. So I'm like, well, if we sprawl out, how, how do we have economics job opportunities um, and amenities, you know, those type of things to support those communities? Well, the, the strange thing about history is we, we, we imagine that people moved out to the suburbs and they, they're all driving downtown to get to work. The reality is that the jobs left downtowns and went out to the suburbs before the people did. And the people moved out and followed the jobs. Today, most commuters go from a one suburb to another suburb. They don't commute from suburbs to downtown. They don't commute from downtown to the suburbs. They, they commute from suburb to suburb. Why do they commute from suburb to suburb instead of commuting within their own suburb? Well, there's lots of reasons. One is that you might have two earner families, and they have different jobs in different locations. But really the most important reason is, People apparently like to separate their job from their home life. They like to have a insulation between it, and, and living about 20 minutes away from work provides that insulation. You can psych yourself up for work on your way to work. You can cool yourself down, calm down on your way home from work by not living right next to your work. So. Uh, urban planners say, well, we need to have a jobs-housing balance with jobs in every community to balance the people who live there. And you look at cities that have a jobs-housing balance, and it turns out the people who are working in various communities aren't the ones who are living there. They're all commuting from another community, and the ones who are living there are commuting to another community. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any way around this or really any need to get around this the fact is we have this amazing transportation system and it allows us to get to a lot of different places really fast and it's called the automobile uh, uh, most studies or there's a uh, uh, university of minnesota has published a study called access america and they show, show that in most urban areas you can reach far more jobs in a 20-minute auto drive than you can in a 60-minute transit ride. So automobiles are really the way to get to work. And what are people in Castle Rock going to do? Well, some of them are going to work at the Denver Tech Center, which is uh, really the first big concentration of jobs that's nearest to them. But a lot of them aren't, aren't going to work in, a con in an area of concentrated jobs. If you look at jobs in, in the Denver area, you'll find you've got a concentration downtown This may be six or seven percent of all the jobs in the region and then you've got the denver tech center the second biggest concentration maybe four or five percent of jobs and then all the rest of the jobs are finely spread across the landscape they're not concentrated at all and it's really hard to serve those lack you know unconcentrated jobs uh with mass transit but it's really easy to serve them 
with automobiles and, and roads. Hmm. Okay, fascinating. Okay, now we have just about four minutes, so this is going to be a speed question for you, Randall. And that is, uh, Karen and I were talking about the haves and the have-nots. Uh, you know, and, and many of the planners say, well, you know, we need to build affordable housing uh, for, quote-unquote, the have-nots. How would you address that? Well, the first thing is to ask, well, why is housing unaffordable in the first place? And the reason is urban planners, thank you very much. They have drawn an urban growth boundary around the Denver area. Uh, and then uh, in Boulder, they bought all the, the land that could be developed and or bought conservation easements. So they've got a green belt around Boulder, and Golden is doing the same thing. So you're making it land really expensive with all that. And then you're trying to zone as much land as you can for multifamily, mid-rise developments, and that's really expensive. So they have made housing unaffordable, and then they say, okay, well, the solution is to uh, have affordable housing. Affordable housing is different from housing affordability. Affordable housing is where we all take our dollars, either tax dollars or charitable dollars, and pool them and build a housing for a handful of low-income people and, and give it to them for less than cost. Housing affordability is what is the affordability of housing for everyone in the area. And if you make housing unaffordable for everyone, which Denver's Urban Growth Boundary has done, then you're especially going to make it unaffordable for low-income people. But you aren't going to solve that problem with affordable housing. The way to solve that problem is to abolish the urban growth boundary and preferably abolish urban planners. Okay, and one other thing, I went, when you were on recently, you said that in the Denver metro area, 50% of the cost of new housing it goes to rules and regulations. Well, that's essentially it. Denver area housing costs 50% more than in places that are relatively unregulated, and by that I mean Texas. Uh, Texas counties aren't allowed to zone, and so cities don't zone very strictly with the exception of Austin, because they're afraid of losing development to the suburbs. So you have a very minimally restrictive environment. And, and as I say, Denver housing costs 50% more. So you can attribute that to the urban growth boundary and to other rules and regulations. Fortunately, Denver isn't as bad as Seattle, which is twice as expensive as Texas communities, or San Francisco, which is four times as expensive, but it's getting there. Uh, Boulder already is there. Boulder is the most expensive city in the country that isn't in a coastal state. Uh, hmm. And uh, Denver is, is, is aspiring to be as bad as Boulder. Wow. So, uh, Randall, uh, thank you so much. Uh, any other questions? No, Karen? this is really helpful. I appreciate your um, expertise. So, Randall O'Toole, uh, Director of Transportation Policy with the Independence Institute, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and you can find him at the Anti-Planner. Randall O'Toole, thank you so much.